you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. It's near the end of Matthew's gospel. I'm going to read beginning in verse 36 to the end of the chapter. Verse 36 to the end of the chapter. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken And one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave, or excuse me, but if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, in an hour which he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We remember the context of this teaching is the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples. Here he is on the side of this mountain or uh, the Mount of Olivet and he's speaking in that area, speaking and preaching to his disciples, those who are listening carefully to what he has to say. And he's been telling them very thoughtfully that there will be judgment upon Israel And we have discussed previously that that is a near future judgment, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And most of this portion of chapter 24 from uh, verse 1, really the, the end of chapter 23 into chapter 24, all the way up. Uh, to verse 26 and 28 and 9 is really about the destruction of Jerusalem, that desolation. And it did happen. The Lord prophesied it and it did happen. And then he begins to turn and he begins to speak not only about that which is near future but that which is far future. And that which is far future is the coming of the Son of Man. Speaking of himself, he is often in the Gospels referred to himself as the Son of Man. 
This speaking of his humanity, the one who is incarnate, the son of God incarnate, come to this very earth. He assumed human flesh and he walked among people just like you and I. and He did it sinlessly. And he refers here to himself as even one as the son of man who will return one day. And when he returns, there are things that need to be thought through. Not about every idea and every exact piece of information about when he will come. But what does it mean to look forward to his coming? What is the context of it? Well, this morning, I want to take verses 36 to 51 And I want to give you uh, five thoughts in answering the question. Now, we've got another question we may look at this morning. We'll consider that in just a moment as well. But the first question is, what can listeners learn regarding the second coming? What what did, did his disciples need to learn about his second coming from hearing him teach? What can we learn as listeners about his second coming? And in this text, from verse 30, verses 36 to 51, we have five main thoughts. Under that question, what can listeners learn regarding the second coming? And remember, we're, we're specifically dealing with this text here, the Olivet Discourse, the Lord's preaching and teaching here. But I hope you'll also recognize, as I begin to give you these five thoughts, that these five thoughts have some tentacles that go out through the rest of the New Testament and they are thoughts that begin to be reinforced and in some places expanded, but we're never given some grand piece of new revelation in the context of the second coming as though Paul gives us the exact date and time. Or if John in his letters or John in the book of Revelation gives us the exact date and time. They continue to reinforce the Lord's teaching And they give some expansion, but not in the context of giving us things that the Lord Jesus did not reveal himself. I think that's an interesting point to make. Firstly, this morning, the sun revealed its exact timing is not to be disclosed. Speaking of the second coming, what can listeners learn regarding the second coming The sun revealed its exact timing is not to be disclosed. Now we're doing this by way of just a little bit of uh, repetition and and rehearsal because uh, Scott preached a very good message from Jude last week and it's been a couple of weeks since I've been in these passages. So I want to remind you of these things. This was not the purpose of the incarnate Son of Man to reveal the exact timing and date of his second coming. That was not his purpose. And he plainly says that. He gives a context of that in the sense of the knowledge. Not even the son knows. He's not saying that he is somehow limited to knowledge. He's saying in the incarnate person, this was not the time. There was no purpose for that. That is not what he was called to do. That was not in the will of God's decree for him to Give that information. Jesus is the Son of the Father. Yet the Son and the Father are one in being in essence. 
The Spirit is one in co-equal essence with the Father and the Son. And each of those persons distinctively works according to the one will in God. The Father elects His people. The Son comes and redeems His people. And the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to the people. But that is the one will of God in salvation. That salvific person of God being worked out in time and space and history among the persons of the Trinity. One will. This being true, that the Son and the Father are one in being, and they have one will and purpose in the fullness of God. Had it been God's will to reveal the exact timing of the second coming, wouldn't the Son have revealed it? Because didn't He come to do the will of the Father? He says that over and over in the Gospels. It's noted time and time again. And had it not been the will of the Father for the exact timing of the second coming to be revealed, would it, wouldn't it have not been revealed? Certainly. For Jesus said, I came to do the will of the Father. So it must not have been the will of the Father. And he makes this declaration. It's not to be known. It's not to be revealed. It's not to be told. Is it not known in the deity of God? Oh, certainly it is. For it's part of the decree. It was just not made to be known to us or meant to be known to us. That was not his purpose. He revealed a lot to us. It's the problem with us is, is we always want more. We struggle to accept that which has been revealed because we always want this extra piece of information to deal with our own humanistic minds. And there's things that God does not reveal to us. And he does it because it's not meant for us. It's meant for us to trust him in the very purity of the sense that the Son of Man is coming again, even though we don't know the date and the time. Well, what else can we learn regarding the second coming? Number two, or letter B, the Son revealed its suddenness without common recognition. The Son revealed its suddenness without common recognition. Verses 37 through 39a, the Lord Jesus speaks of the context of his coming as that is in likeness to the days of Noah. He says in verse 38, for as in the day, as in those days, speaking of the days of Noah, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. Here we have people continuing with daily life. The son revealed that the second coming will be sudden without common recognition. Everybody will be carrying on with their daily lives. He says, as in the days of Noah. They carried on marrying, eating, drinking. And it says, until the day that Noah entered the ark. What was it that happened when Noah entered the ark? 
the rains came, and it was a different kind of rain because it wasn't stopping. And there was a different type of flooding because the whole of the earth was flooding. From that which was coming down from above and that water which was coming from up underneath. It was a different kind of flooding. And Noah entered the ark and the doors were shut. And even if people had been nearby, they didn't make it to the ark. But it hadn't been too many hours before that they were still carrying on with the common recognition of daily life. So it will be when the Son of Man returns again at his second coming. Letter C, or number three, the lesson we can learn regarding the second coming. The Son revealed its concluding and complete condemnation for unbelievers. The Son revealed its concluding and complete condemnation for unbelievers. Verse 39 says, And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Now think about that for a second. We're given a moment there of context to where all of the people in the flood... There's this moment. Many of them had heard news of that ark being built. The New Testament calls Noah a preacher of faith, the faith of salvation in God alone. The ark as a type of Christ looking at it. Noah in the context of who he is and what he did. He had been telling people, I mean, this large vessel's being built. And people are like, why is he doing this? And he's telling them. News spreads. They didn't understand. They kept eating and drinking and marrying and living life. And the water came. The flood came. And it says, they understood when the flood came and it took them all away. This was very much a concluding act to those people on the earth at the time. It was complete condemnation. Not one of those unbelievers at the time of Noah lived through the flood. They all died. It's not a very happy subject. We often attribute the story of Noah's ark and the rainbow. We have children color the rainbow. Um, Some of the children that have grown up around here have known for years that the flood was more than the rainbow. Um, You might, in some of our Baptist circles, you might see pictures a little different if you've taught the flood correctly. Um, One Baptist pastor told me that he was a little taken aback one time after he'd preached on the flood and Noah that a little kid handed him a drawing after the sermon and there were bodies floating in the water all around the ark. It's because it's serious business, isn't it? 
It's not something we as preachers just get some great glee in talking about and saying, they all died, yeah! No. These were individual lives, people like you and me, living and breathing, talking, speaking, eating and drinking together, having laughs, enjoying time together. And they had not understood what Noah was doing and why he was building that great vessel. They had not understood what he was saying about what would happen and what was to come. But Jesus says, when the flood came, they understood and they were all taken away. So it will be when the Son of Man comes. So it will be. There will be lots of people on this earth when he returns. And they will have heard some of the news. But they had not understood and they had not believed and they had not bowed the knee and they had not repented. And yet when he comes, they will understand and they will be taken away. And even here, we have a positive sense of the flood. There were those that were saved from the flood, weren't they? Those who found special favor with God. And that special favor was not according to anything they had done. It was that God had bestowed it upon them. Noah and his family were spared at the flood. They were spared because they believed. You say, how do you know they believed? Well, Noah built the ark, didn't he? It's about, to us, let's just be honest. You know, the common everyday person reads the story of the flood, and that's about the stupidest thing ever. Some guy out in the middle of the wilderness starts chopping trees down and building a large vessel that's a large ship or boat. And what would we do? What a fool. What an idiot. He is absolutely wasting his time. We haven't had rain like that in our lifetimes. We've heard stories of stuff, but nothing like that. And he says, God's going to do it? But the difference was Noah believed. God gave him a message gave him his word and said, here's how awful the sin of man is and here's what I'm going to do and I want you to build this ark. And what did Noah do? He believed. He believed the very word of God. Just like Abraham later on, as it says his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Noah had faith in the very word of God. Abraham had faith in the word of God, the specific word of God. And here it is, the Lord Jesus plainly saying, I'm coming again, and it will be like the days of Noah. And the positive is, for all those who would repent and believe in me, they, they will be safe. Just like in the days of Noah, the ones who believed were spared, but the ones who 
did not believe were not spared. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? Well, <coughs> fourthly, what listeners can learn regarding the second coming, the sun revealed its certainty is non-negotiable. He revealed its exact timing is not to be disclosed. He revealed its suddenness without common recognition. He revealed its concluding and complete condemnation for unbelievers. Here he doesn't give us all of this information about what his second coming will be like. He likens it to something that these disciples will know from the Bible or the Old Testament. He likens it to that which they can, they can grab hold of. And he says, it's going to be complete condemnation. And then he says, its certainty is non-negotiable. He gives this in a sense in verses 36 through 41 by way of the whole of his thinking. And yet... In verse 44, look at what he says. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming. Here it's very specific. What you can derive in earlier phrases and sentences, and you can go, oh yeah, this is pretty sure. Now he says very plainly in this phrase, for the Son of Man is coming. It's a definite it's non-negotiable. It's certain. He spoke this with the directness of someone who knew and understood what will happen. And he spoke it with certainty. What we see here is revelation that is important to us. Don't get so worked up about the date and the time, but you better be worked up about the certainty of his second coming. You may not know the hour. I certainly don't. I don't think any of you does either. If you do, then we need to have some conversation. Um, none of us knows the date, the time, or the hour. But there's lots of people trying to figure it out, and they've been doing it for a long time. Throughout church history, there's always been some group or some individual. Even in more recent times, there's been specific pastors who have tried to come up with dates some in the 1800s and those passed. Some in the 1900s and those passed. Even in the, the 1980s, there was a pastor who said he knew when Jesus was coming. And he put out a date, uh, October something, of 1984 or 6. I don't remember exactly. But it's somewhere in there. He had an exact date and time. And it passed. And the sun did not come. But he's worried about the wrong thing. He needs to be concerned about the certainty that he is coming. Even if it's not, not in my day or not in my time, even if it's after I'm dead and in my body's in the ground. See, this sets up the rest of how important his second coming is, is to be worried about its certainty, and he speaks about it. The language indicates that Jesus was supposed to reveal the certainty of his second coming even though he didn't reveal the exact time. So he did exactly what the Father willed him to do. He told you it will happen. 
He's also telling them that this is enough information. This is enough information for believers to cherish and prepare for the future. If you need to prepare for the future, he's giving you enough information. There's lots of people that like to prepare for the future. There's certain groups call themselves preppers. They always are doing something to prepare for the future. Hey, that's good. Prepare. Preparation is a good thing. We don't know what could happen in this world. Things that we don't think would happen have happened. But the Bible says, as far as the second coming is concerned, you have enough information to be prepared to know that the sun is certainly coming back. And it's also information that you ought to cherish. Don't go looking for something else. Cherish the information you have been given. The certainty of the return of the Son of Man. But also this certainty is not just enough for us as believers. It's enough for unbelievers to be given the warning regarding their unbelief. See, this is part of the gospel. The the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is coming again. But why is there good news wrapped up in his second coming? Because when he comes, he will be judging all those who are not in Christ Jesus according to what they have believed, and they have believed in themselves. Those who have believed in Christ Jesus, they will be judged according to what they have believed by God's grace. Certainly the good news is that the Lord Jesus came the first time. He lived a perfect, sinless life on this earth in a way that none of us could ever even imagine accomplishing it. He did it. And then he went to the cross and he died a sinner's death. He who had no sin became sin on our behalf. He was our substitute. That's good news. But the reason it's good news is because It renders all those who believe safe when he returns because he's coming in the authority to judge this world. And he will judge it. And all those in it, according to belief or unbelief. And all the information is right here for unbelievers. For them to be prepared that the Lord Jesus is coming again, you better be ready. Well, fifthly, what can we learn regarding the second coming? The Son revealed its timing will not be on any human timetable. The Son revealed its timing will not be on any human timetable. Timetable. Verse 44, once again. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. His coming is not going to be on our timetable. His coming is not only not going to be on our timetable, but it will be at a time that we don't think he's coming.
Maybe you've invited someone over for dinner and you told them to be there at, say, 5 o'clock. And, you know, for some reason these people want to make a good impression and they're there at 4.30. And what happens? You weren't expecting them at 4.30. And they show up at your door and you're, what? Hey, come on in. I'm still cleaning the toilet, but come on in. Right? You didn't think they were coming. You had it in their mind. They'll be here just a few minutes before five, or maybe they might even be a few minutes late. But here they are, 4.30. Lord Jesus pointedly says, This won't be on your timetable. But we can learn a few things as we walk through this. Read again verses 42 to 44. Therefore, be on the alert, the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming... He would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of the slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know. We have a real understanding here. That for believers and unbelievers alike, there is enough information for us to heed the second coming, even if it's not on our human timetable. Certainly, not one unbeliever will know when the Lord Jesus is coming. And yet we have enough information in the text that unbelievers, they should have listened The other problem will be is that when he comes, even if they had been told the hour, would unbelievers have been preparing in the right motive and for the right reasons in his coming? No. This is why there's this special emphasis on believers in the second coming. Remember, he's speaking properly to his disciples here. This would have been a group predominantly of believers. Do I know for sure that every one of them was believers in the sense of if there was a larger crowd, depending on one's view of how many were there at the Olivet Discourse? No, not necessarily. But I have enough information from the text for me to recognize that this was spoken 
in the context of believers, them listening and hearing. And he's preparing them in mind and heart. This is to prepare them not just for his second coming and to have certainty in it and to hold fast to it, that they could cherish it and know no matter what happens, no matter how much devastation there is, that when he comes, he will take care of all things. But this is meant to prepare the minds and hearts of believers that their motives and their reasoning for looking forward to his second coming would be right motives. The problem for the unbeliever is, is they're always looking how to take advantage of a situation and make it work out for themselves. Glory for themselves. And if they knew the hour of the second coming, they would be working and waiting just to be able to present themselves to Jesus in such a way that they could say, look at what I've done. But he's warning us as believers, and we see it. In verses 42 to 51, therefore be on the alert. He's going to give us reasons about our responsibility. Second question this morning. What can the listeners learn regarding their responsibility with the second coming? What can the listeners learn regarding their responsibility with the second coming? Now, first of all, I want you to understand, we're just going to start to unfold some of this this morning because actually what begins to happen here uh, from verse 42 onward, this is an introduction into chapter 25. And you're going to see two parables in the opening of chapter 25 that are parables used to express the teaching that he's given in verses 42 to 51. And so we're going to give some of that context in 42 to 51 in opening up this idea of our responsibility and the context of it. So you're going to hear for the next few weeks this idea repeated once again, uh, be ready or be watching, uh, be, be alert, be ready, be watching, or be working. So there is... In awaiting the second coming, there's work for us to be doing. There's work for us to be garnering in our minds, to be thinking about. We're not just supposed to be those who sit back and say, well, he's coming again. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to wait on the second coming, and he's going to wipe all these jerks out that I don't like and do away with them, and then I'll get what I want. No, that's not the Christian view. He gives us responsibility. Under question number two, letter A, the son told them to be alert. The word alert there is to have mind ready, to be watching and thinking, to be carefully paying attention. Be alert. It's the idea that the scripture gives in multiple places about the watchman on the wall or the, the warrior who's on the wall. I think about the, the times that David was running from Saul and David would have soldiers who were to be watching and be on the alert just in case Saul's men were coming. 
I think about, I think about the lacking of Saul's men to protect him from David when David could have killed him in the cave. Some were alert and some were not. Maybe some of you get the imagery of the idea of being alert and ready and standing on that wall in the context of something like, uh, you know, uh, Tolkien's view of all of the peoples being prepared and ready. They were always looking for that evil to overtake them. They were ready. Be alert. Be alert. Be alert. Well, why be alert? Well, be alert for you do not know the hour. You do not know the hour. He says, this is the reason you need to be alert. And even if you think you know when he's coming, know that it's not going to happen because he's going to come when you don't think he will. That's why he's saying be alert. Have your minds looking and paying attention, thinking about this. He's given the sense of this alertness for us being ready when it happens. Do we know for sure it'll come in our day while our bodies are still walking and talking on this earth? No, we don't know that for sure, do we? But that's not the point. The point is to give us something to understand that our life has purpose and fulfillment even though Christ not, might not return in our lifetime. This is why in letter B, the son told them to be ready. He told them to be alert, which is what we see in verse 42. And then in verse 44, he says, for this reason, you, almost, you also must be ready. This comes on the heels of his illustration of someone breaking into the house and the thief coming. And he said he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. He's saying, well, since you don't know the time, you have to be on the alert. You have to always be ready. The thief comes in the night. You don't know when he's going to come, and you have to be alert and be ready. So it is with the Son of Man. Why be ready? Well, be ready because the son's coming is non-negotiable. It's certain. If he's told you it's certain that he's coming and he's told you to be alert and be ready, then we need to follow that command. Now, that doesn't mean there's not practical things about it. Be alert to what? Be ready for what? And we'll get to that and unfold some of it. But the first thing is to note you have to be alert and be ready. It says something about the way we live our lives and the thinking of our minds. In the days of Noah, they were just going around with common things, acting as like those common things didn't matter to the context of the world around them and to the future context of what will happen. Let's take in the Noahic context for just a moment the sense of the idea of God, once again after the flood, telling Noah and his family to fill the land, to have dominion over it. What was not done well in the garden with Adam and Eve, he's giving them this commandment and saying, fill and multiply the earth. You have to remember that was a complete do-over, in a sense, at the Noahic covenant. Everything was destroyed except for Noah and his family. 
Sin had gotten so awful and terrible, God's saying, okay, and here through the line of Noah will come the seed of the Messiah. And yet, once again, the earth was to be filled and multiply with people and there was dominion once again. This was not just something specific in the idea of grace and certainly that element is there because Noah found favor in the eyes of God. But there was a reestablishment of what was common. What God gave in marriage in the garden, Noah and his family were to reestablish marriage. This is why we fight so hard for things like what is marriage in our common day? We have to realize that part of our being ready is about thinking through the whole of our lives. But it involves two fundamental points to everything we do. How are you and I to be ready? Well, first of all, the Lord Jesus teaches us to believe in the Messiah. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the very Son of God? Do you believe that there is no hope for your soul to live in eternal rest and peace? Peace with God. I'm not talking about peace and kind of floating around in nothingness. I'm talking about that you won't endure the wrath of God. The only way for that to happen is for you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to save you from the debt and the guilt of your sin. This is how we're ready. Once we believe, we must follow the Messiah. Are you willing to take up your cross and follow him at all cost? Are you willing to say to the world that no, God created the heavens and the earth and endure the ridicule of some person telling you you're an idiot because you believe God created everything and he did it in six literal 24-hour days? Are you willing to endure that kind of scorn? It's really not that big of a deal, except in reality, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will often kill me. It's kind of how we live, isn't it? He says, the two most important things are to believe in the Messiah and follow the Messiah. And he's going to unfold what that means. Not in its fullest sense. We get a lot of that as we read through the rest of the New Testament. But he's going to open the door for us to understand what it means. Once we believe, we need to follow the Messiah to be ready. And we'll unfold that as we go forward. But in closing this morning, we have to recognize that for all those that will not believe and they will not follow, there is a grave warning. And the warning is given through this illustration of the two slaves One slave is faithful. His his master finds him faithful when he comes. In verse 47, it says, Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. He'll be found faithful, and all that was granted unto him will be given unto him. But then in verse 48, he says, But if that evil slave says in his heart... 
One writer notes here, the word if introduces a hypothetical case. Jesus is not speaking of something that actually happened. He's using this as an illustration here to talk about just an imagery of a faithful slave versus an unfaithful one. But the unfaithful slave is not just the idea of being unfaithful. The Lord Jesus here in Matthew calls them a hypocrite. They were given enough information, and yet they went against all the information they were giving, given. And they actually undermined it. This is what a hypocrite does. A hypocrite takes proper information and then uses it, goes against it, and undermines the information they were given. It's interesting when Luke gives the same information, he doesn't use the word hypocrite in Luke 12, 46. He uses the word unbeliever. And this is what a hypocrite is. So the warning here is, hey, be alert, be ready, believe, and do not be an unbeliever. Because an unbeliever twists the word of God and takes that information and then undermines it and does what they want to do with it and goes against it. The picture of the hypocrite or the unbelieving slave is one who says, You know what? The master is coming. But he's not coming for a long time. And since he's not going to be here for a while, I won't take care of those in his house. What I'll do is I'll take advantage of them. You see, that's what he's saying here about this slave. The master is not coming for a long time. I know he's coming, but it's not for a long time. Oh, and then he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. And the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour which he does not know. Here he has undermined that truth which was given to him. And instead of taking care of those in the house, he went against them. He undermined that word that was given to him and he took advantage of those people. And when the the, the son comes, he says, it will be like he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some people read these things and they jest at them and they make fun of them and they say that, oh, you're just a bunch of down in the doldrums people. No, I'm just saying we're believing people. There's lots of positivity in the gospel. And the greatest positivity of all is that the Son saves his people from the wrath of the Father eternally. And once they are in him, they can never be taken out of his hand. And once they are in him, they will live eternally with him. Through the trials and struggles of this very world we live in, remaining sin and all of the difficulties, and yet when the Son comes, he will reconcile all of it. The evildoer who looks like he's doing well and has no problem, if he is an unbeliever, he will be reckoned a hypocrite. 
And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't look at all those around you and covet everything they have, especially, especially those who are unbelieving. We need to have a gracious pity toward them because you know what? It's all they're ever going to have. Their car, their boat, their house, their whatever it is. I'm just naming stuff, whatever. But they will not have peace with God. On the day that the sun returns, they will be found to be a hypocrite. They will have undermined God's truth. And they will have turned it against even the people of God. And they will be dealt with. We're not joyous about that, that they will be dealt with. But we are joyous that Christ will return. I say to you this morning... The Bible only gives us two camps, believers and unbelievers. Believers in Christ and unbelievers who hate Christ. And the son says, he marks the line and no one will change it. I ask you, Will you be found in him, believing, alert and ready, serving his house, his people, serving in this present world as one of his servants? Or will you be found unbelieving, a hypocrite, a scoffer? It's only two places for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to give us your word. The plainness at times is disturbing. And yet, Lord, it's disturbing to deal with great and grave issues because these are issues of eternal consequence. Lord, as we come to your table, deal with us this morning. Prick the hearts of unbelievers that they may believe. Prick the hearts of believers that we will repent of sin and we will long to be alert and ready, working and faithful while we're on this very earth. Lord, in weeks ahead, give us thoughtfulness about your word and what it tells us to do in following you and taking up our cross. May we glory in you through your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.